Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. This is part two of our pair of episodes about the uh, 2012 Ig Nobel Prizes. In our last episode, we told you what the Ig Nobel Prizes are, and we ran through a couple of the winners. We mentioned the uh, prize in fluid dynamics, as well as uh, the prize in, what was the other one? Neuroscience. Neuroscience, yep. yes. The dead salmon. There was a dead salmon, and, uh, and then there was also some spilt coffee in the other experiment. Uh, just to rehash really quickly, Ig Nobel Prizes, these happen every year, put on by the Annals of Improbable Research. Uh, it is a celebration of the weird, sometimes mundane, often hilarious, but ultimately useful scientific studies, real scientific studies that happen every year, uh, and, uh, and and why we should care about them. Yep. The aim is to make you laugh and to make you think, and I think they do both of these really well. Yes. So uh, this is the, the part B uh, of the episode where, in this one, we're just going to run through some of the really uh, cool winners from this year. And uh, so if you haven't listened to the previous episode, it's not required for this one. Uh, so you can you can listen to this one first and listen to the other one or take them in the order uh, that God intended them. But uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, launch into it. The first uh, of the prizes that we're going to discuss today... Uh, relates to uh, Monkeys Behind. This is the 2012 Anatomy Prize. Yep. Franz DeWall, a biologist at Emory University, and Jennifer Picorni, a researcher at Emory, won this prize because uh, they showed that chimps can match the behinds of other familiar chimps to their faces. Um, so face to butt, right? Yep. And the two were trying to determine whether chimpanzees can interpret gender from appearance. So... First of all, why is this study funny? I don't even think we really have to say it. First of all, it involves monkeys. Anything mm-hmm. involving monkeys that doesn't also involving a vicious mauling attack or um, or, a, or a tragic death of some kind yeah. uh, is going to be hilarious. Uh, just because monkeys are, you know, we can't help but see ourselves in the ways monkeys behave, and uh, monkeys do ridiculous and grotesque things. Uh, so there's that level of it. And then it involves, a, it involves butts. Anytime a, a, a butt is involved... In a scientific uh, study, mm-hmm. we're all over it. It's hilarious. The butt is funny. The uh, the, the things that come out of, of butts are the are the, the stuff the, the 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 ground floor of of comedy. And in this study, we have monkey butts. The double. Yeah, there's, what there's more could you good scatology humor in this. Uh, let's get into the specifics. Uh, what they did is they looked at six adult chimpanzees trained on computerized matching to sample. Yes. Um, we're shown a sample behind when, and if you want to get scientific about it, you could say the anogenital region of a chimpanzee. And then they were rewarded for selecting a corresponding facial image. So it's like three thumbnails, one thumbnail of a monkey's butt Mm -hmm. and then two thumbnails, each with a different monkey's face. So think, I mean, it's in the actual paper I was reading, there's actually a comparison made to like Facebook. So you had like monkey Facebook and then monkey butt book. Okay. And then you have to, to, to piece the two together. So we're studying, they're studying this because obviously the way that animals identify each other is of endless interest. We're very mm-hmm. interested in how we identify faces as humans, uh, where how other animals identify each other. Like in our previous bat episode, we talked about how bats are able to perceive other members of their species or peer group via 
the sounds that they make. I mean, it's a vital part of how we interact socially with the world around us. So we're always interested in that. Monkeys, obviously, there's a lot of butt going on in any kind of monkey environment. There's, uh, I'm, especially if you've ever been to the zoo, you know, you, the baboon butts everywhere. Monkeys are, are are naked creatures. They're not wearing clothes. The, the butt is very much a part of their social interaction, much in the same way of, of the butt of the dog is a part of their social Well, and like baboons, I'm thinking, too, about um, like the estrus for a, a baboon. You would be able to tell whether or not a female was um, w- was ready for mating yes. by looking at her butt. Um, so, of course, there's, it's, it's a huge butt culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of course, I, I can't help but think of humans and think, you know, if if another life form were testing our recognition capabilities, what would they test us on? You know, would they say that we could uh, pick one another out by hair? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there, I saw a study recently about that, about hair, how easily okay. we recognize hair, uh, particular hairstyles with an individual. Right. And in the study, they would take a celebrity with a particular hairstyle, like say, I don't know, like a... Uh, uh, just pick anyone, like a John Ham. You know, it's like like John Ham and his hair, and then another celebrity with their sort of signature hair. And if they put one celebrity's hair on the uh, on the other head, you know, digitally, not with a, with a blade or anything, no scalping involved. Uh, that for for at least for a second, you identify the person based purely on their hair. So take John Ham's hair off, put it on uh, I don't know Ron Howard, and at <laughs> at first glance, you'll be like, oh, there's John Ham. Then you're like, oh no, wait, it's it's actually Ron Howard wearing. John Hamm's scalp. See, and it always boils down to those most simple things, right? Like how our brain is just trained to go into pattern recognition mode and create this facsimile of of what we look like or we think we look like to one another. So with humans, we see see hair, we see face, and we see things like glasses. We all have that situation where someone who wears glasses suddenly isn't, and we don't recognize them, you know? The whole Superman Clark Kent thing. Yeah, it's true. You know, actually, when I was little, I remember when my dad would take off his glasses, I would always be a little bit decentered because it wasn't like, hey, you're not dad anymore. You know, <laughs> when you're very young like that, it sort of occurs to you in that way. But I do think that this is an interesting study. And I do think it's, uh, I mean, it is about monkey butts. There's no getting around it. Um, and the recognition. Uh, but it also says something about being with people who are familiar to you and the ability to pick out these different things about them and community too, yes. right? Because it, they were talking about uh, familiar faces to them and familiar butts. Yeah, and they ultimately found that that, that they could pa- they could they could pair a butt with a face that they knew, but not a not a face that they didn't know. You know, I mean, it's not like it's not that interlinked with them. Yeah, it's not like some sort of magical butt sense that they have. No. Wow, so a Facebook of butts, really, for the monkeys. So it's like yeah. butt book. And then we could have hair book as well. Yeah. I mean, these are possibilities. Yeah, I mean, you, you, the other uh, the hilarious thing about this is you can't help but anthropomorphize the situation. And you start thinking, well, what if they did this with humans? And you are like, and you ask yourself, how many butts in the world could I pair with, with faces? And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a hard time. Answering that one. Uh, well, I don't. Th- most people wouldn't be able to. Yeah, but, you could maybe know. maybe one butt, but uh, it, unless you're in a nudist colony. Yeah. Right? Well, even then, you know, I mean, I just don't think we have the butt sense unless there's something particular about the butt. Like I could probably pick uh, my friend Oz's butt out because I know that he was. This is a great story of his that I'm stealing here. Uh, he was shot with a flaming arrow in the arm when he was a kid. 
Because right. he was apparently one of those kids. Right. The kind that gets shot in the, the arm of the flaming arrow. So they had to take um, some butt tissue off to patch up his arm. So he has like some sort of, like he has a big notch out of his butt from that. Did, did he grow up in a big carny community? Um, I think he was just kind of like a Tom Sawyer upbringing, okay. <laughs> I guess, you know? <laughs> Um, I thought perhaps his parents were in the Jim Rose Circus. I don't know. No, I just I think it was just kids running wild with flaming arrows, like they did back in the day. Oh, back in the day, before helicopter parents. All right, so let's move on to the next prize uh, that we wanted to discuss: the acoustics prize. Yes, now this one's pretty great. This one uh, it, it comes to us from uh, a pair of researchers in Japan. And they invented this device called the uh, speech jammer, which the idea here is, and we've all been in this situation, somebody's talking, and you really don't want them to talk anymore. You would rather they stop talking. And this could be... Again, the Oscars, Yeah, the Oscars. It's like, or, you know, they're up there, they just keep going. When are they going to stop? Thank my agent, thank my dog, yeah. Yeah, what if I could push a button and make them shut up? And that is what we have here. And and it, it, but it's... The, the way they went about it is they they looked at how we speak, all right? When when we're speaking, we're also listening. Words are coming out of our mouth, and uh, even though it's not really happening on a conscious level, we're checking everything that's coming out. We, we have a, a QA department in our mind that's making sure that the words coming out of our mouth are saying what they need to say and sounding the way they need to sound. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't happen, then it's, I mean, imagine a, it's it's like a, a conveyor belt at a, at a factory. You're building something. You're building your words. And if they and if things start coming out um, out at the other end of that uh, assembly line wrong and incorrect, you're going to shut down the, the the whole line and figure out what's wrong. And that's what happens when when your speech if suddenly things don't seem to be coming out right, it shuts it down. Yeah, and the speech jammer actually creates this shutting down process by playing back the voice of the person who is speaking at a really slight delay. And that does cause confusion in the parts of the brain that are responsible for hearing and processing. And then it causes the person to either start stuttering or just stop talking altogether. And I do think, as you, sh- you were saying, it's, it's, uh, it's incredibly, uh, it's just incredible how sensitive, um, our speech and hearing abilities are that just that slight just a small margin, yeah, would just shut everything. So down. it's not even like a full-on echo kind of a thing going on here. It's just a slight tweak, just enough to make your the QA department in your brain shut down the line. Uh, Katsutaka uh, Kurihara and Koji Tusuka, uh, excuse me, Tsukata are the inventors of this, and they said that this technology could also be useful to ensure speakers in a meeting take turns appropriately. Uh, and that when the person begins to speak, you just put this up. I'm just trying to imagine it in corporate culture. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great things, too, uh, about it being uh, uh, some research that came out of Japan. Because uh, Japan has a, you, a tendency, you think of uh, of, the, of Japanese culture as very, very polite and very mm-hmm. uh, steamed in, in, in the ritual of politeness. And out of that, you can, you can sort of imagine a certain amount of passive aggressiveness that... Uh, that, that aims at avoiding uh, unpleasantly unpleasantries and awkwardness in a social environment. So instead of having to, to actually say, look, you need to be quiet now, you're talking too much and you shouldn't be talking, instead you can just push a button and shut that down. Right. Like there's something wonderfully uh, passive-aggressive about that and, and perhaps to an extent uh, in a very broad-sweeping way distinctly Japanese. Yes, it is. It's a polite way of saying please stop. 
Um, all right, so let's go on to the last prize that we are going to talk about, the medicine prize. And once again, butts. Yes, the paper that was honored here was titled Colonic Gas Explosion During Therapeutic Colonoscopy with Electrocautery, which is um, exactly what it sounds like. It, it basically has to do with the fact that when you're performing col- col- colonoscopies, mm-hmm. when you're sending in the troops through the back door to uh, see what's going on mm-hmm. in the uh, rectal region, you, you're basically, I mean, an- enough uh, uh, people out there know, know exactly what I'm talking about here. You're, you're We've done podcasts about uh, some of the technology involved here. We're using cameras. We're using devices to see what's going on uh, in the rectal area. We're sticking things up there, electric things. Right. And mm-hmm. we're seeing what's going on. So there are some complications that can occur. Right. Uh, like we're talking about like what happens if there's some residue in the yes. colon, right? There's mm-hmm. some, some uh, fecal residue. Or, and you have a laser that you're using. Yes, you could trigger area. the explosion of colonic gases. It's rare. It's admittedly it's rare, but when it happens, it can understandably be uh, um, uh, a rather shocking event and and, and harmful event. Um, you, you have to have just the right amount of gases. There have to, you have to have the combustible gases, hydrogen, methane, which is produced by the fermentation of non-absorbable carbohydrates in the colon by colonic bacteria. Uh, you have to have the presence of combustive gas, oxygen, and the application of a heat source. So uh, this uh, and this occurs due to the uh, machinery, uh, if you will, that is being introduced to the area. Right, because think of it in this context: uh, you some, at many times they are using lasers to cauterize polyps. Yes. Right. So if they go in there and they find polyps, and they're going to go ahead and take care of those yeah. with a laser. So then, as you say, you're introducing this element that could be combustible if you have, let's say, you know, a little release of methane and hydrogen gases. Yeah, electrocauter. You're cauterizing the wound in a colon environment where there may be butt gas. And it, this, I, I hate to use the word perfect storm, but this could be a perfect storm of, of, of conditions that could lead to a colonic explosion. Now, this, you know, these, as you say, this is rare, and these explosions have happened, and the patients have recovered. Yes. But if you are undergoing this procedure, wouldn't you just feel so much better to know that this person, this, this Ben, Emmanuel Ben Susan, worked on this and brought this problem to light and said that we need proper surgery preparation. Yeah, so they're talking about performing enemas, making sure that the working environment is clear before you send in the troops to to, to deal with the problem. So again, it's funny because A, it involves butts, it involves butt gas, it involves foreign objects going into the butt. All three of these things are, again, bedrock comedy. Uh, you know, you go back to the Canterbury Tales, and you have tales of foreign objects entering the rectum. Um, well, but I'm also thinking about that Venn diagram that we talked about in yes. terms of, like, what makes something funny, because it has to be in that zone where there's actually, uh, there's no harm that's going to be done, right? It, right. Because I mean, we're preventing harm here. We're preventing right? harm, yes. Yeah. Uh, and yet there's an implied threat of a gastrointestinal explosion. Yeah, so the, the gastrointestinal explosion colonic explosion, butt explosion, whatever you want to call it, in and of itself funny, plus very, very important because we're, we're talking about preventing harm to patients who are undergoing important procedures. And that's very serious and, 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 and key to, I mean, this whole thing is key to what ignobles are all about, finding studies that, that are important but also hilarious. 
But and also people who are toiling away for hours and hours yes. and uh, not necessarily getting the recognition that they need or deserve. Uh, so it is a nice way to bring light to the subject. Yeah, like I have a printout of the article here, and I don't think like an like a not worrying about like the medical terminology in it. Like there's no way an eight year old could get through this without dying of laughter, just because there's you know it's the whole thing is a, it's about what it's about. It's about colons and. And, and gas building up there and things going into the, the rectum, it's, uh, it's a minefield. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is a great way to engage kids too, yeah. right? I mean, we always try to say, how can we make science interesting to kids? Well, you know, Sometimes throw a little gas in there. Sometimes it's about bringing out the, uh, the grotesque aspects it's of it. It's true, you know? it's true. So there's just a, so there's an extended taste of what uh, the 2012 Ig Nobel Prizes were all about. There were some other cool studies that we're not going to go into here. You should definitely look up online. People's hair changing colors because of the water. Uh, Why a ponytail goes back and forth rather than up and down when a person jogs. Yeah, there was one related to, uh, uh, it's like boring science writing. Like, why is it, like, it's very meta sounding. Oh, it was a report on reports and the cost of reports and assessing whether or not report, another report should be done, I believe. That was the literature prize for the Nobel. Yeah. So check those out. Um, if you're at all into science or you're at all into into humor, and definitely if those two interests uh, cross over, and I feel they do for most of the people listening to this podcast, go check out the uh, Ig Nobel Prize winners for 2012. You'll find those on the Improbable Research website. Just do a search for that. I will also link to all of this stuff in the blog post that accompanies these episodes. In the meantime, if you would like to get in touch with us, Maybe share your thoughts on some of these uh, particular studies, uh, some of the studies we didn't mention, or past winners. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Tumblr. We are called Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. Over at Twitter, however, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always share your favorite ignoble awards with us by emailing us at blowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.